Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join the Messiah Lutheran Church Bible Study class led by Pastor Jim Otte. For this episode and the next few episodes, we are doing something a little bit different. Instead of jumping right into a new series, we are unearthing early recordings of the podcast to bring to you. These were recorded during a whole different series, and we can't start with part one because we didn't think to record it at the time. So if you're new to the podcast or returning and thinking, why are we on part four when this is a whole different series? Don't worry, you didn't miss an episode or anything. We are just jumping around a little bit and offering a sneak peek from past classes. So without delaying any further, here is a part of a series titled Living the Life of Jesus's Beloved. Enjoy. All right, well, we're continuing our study in the uh, book of Philippians, and today we'll be in uh, 2.22 to 3.7 is, is anyway the goal. And so just to kind of do a little review from last week, three things we kind of focused on was the first one was resentment is our natural sinful inclination, meaning that that if you have ever experienced resentment in your life, just know that you come by it naturally. We're born with that instinct, all right? And and as we had talked about that what the the main deal with resentment is is that it's very self-absorptive. In other words, that we get very focused on why isn't my life as good as somebody else's or why is it that somebody else has what I don't have? It's that sort of thing. And so we talked about some different ways to, uh, to manage that better uh, in life. And the reason why that's important is because the effect that resentment has on relationships is that ultimately it can kill relationships. And that's not just our relationship with each other, but it's also our relationship with God. Is that if you think of resentment, and I was thinking about this the other day, is almost any word that, that ends with the suffix M-E-N-T suggests a sort of hardened sort of existence. Like you think of cement, right? All right. Or, or the word commitment, you know, there's a, there's a permanence to it. And if you add the word meant or the suffix meant to resent, see, that's not just somebody who periodically would experience uh, disappointment or discouragement or a little bit of comparing, that sort of thing. Resentment is a kind of a hardening of that. And a, a person can become a hardened person in that. That's why resentment is so damaging to, to relationships. And so, that, so as we also talked about then, the antidote for that from God's perspective is gratitude. That gratitude is the antidote for resentment. Because the deal with gratitude is that when you practice gratitude and you are intentional about focusing on gratitude, then the, the perspective that you take is, is that you don't deserve anything. Is that everything that you have comes by way of a gift from somebody else and that the nature of that gift is it's unconditional. It's not merited. It's not based on something you did. It's based on the generosity of, the, of that person or whoever it is who is the giver. And when you really focus in on that, what happens is it changes your whole outlook on the idea that other people could be equally or even more greatly blessed by that, that person or even by God's generosity. And you wouldn't be jealous about it. In fact, you would be happy for them that God has blessed them in a way that might be unique and different than the way that he has blessed you. And so you can kind of see where that's, that's an amazing and quite transformative perspective to take on life. So where we're going to pick up today then is kind of finishing up with chapter two as uh, Paul again, he's in the, I guess the way to describe it would be to say that he's in a bit of a lament mode where he's very sad about the fact that he is, you know, he's a, he, a, under house arrest in Rome with a chain to a soldier, and he can't get to 
the people that he longs to see, the people of Ephesus and the people of Corinth and, and the people of uh, Philippi. He wants to go there and see them. He wants to see how they're doing. He wants to sort of touch base with them because these are all churches that he started. So instead of him being able to go, he's talking now in this section about other people that he will send in his stead. Okay, so verse 22 and following. He says, but you know of his, now he's talking here about Timothy. Remember last week we talked about Timothy, but you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself will also be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him and not on, not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Okay, so he's starting now. He's talking about this idea of Timothy. Now, do we, what do you know about Timothy? Anything about Timothy? There's a book written, at, written after him or for him, all right? He was a young guy, young pastor that, that uh, Paul had sort of taken under his wing, and he was mentoring uh, uh, Timothy in terms of how to be this uh, spiritual leader to, uh, to the people that he would, he would ultimately serve. Are any of you involved in mentoring? Any of you do mentoring on purpose? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we all probably mentor to some degree. Tom, you mentor? Just people at work, new people coming in. Oh, yeah. Okay. So when somebody comes in to work, uh, then you would sort of take them under your wing and show them the ropes and kind of see this is how we do things and all those kinds of things. Yeah. And that's a, that is a wonderful blessing. And it's a great benefit, not just to the person who's being mentored, but also to the person who's doing the mentoring. Yeah, actually, I mean, I've heard that too. And, and some of the mentoring I'm doing now at kind of the, uh, I don't want to say over the hill, that sounds so dumb, but I, I've been a pastor now for almost 40 years, okay, 38. And so I'm happier saying 38 than I'm saying 40, okay. But what I'm finding now is that I have a, I have a lot of opportunities to mentor younger pastors who don't have quite the number of arrows in their rear end that I do. So... Uh, and it's kind of that, it's kind of like that. You sort of have to teach people how to, how to navigate that and, and how to deal with that. And what do you do with discouragement? And what do you do when you're preaching life-changing sermons and nobody's changing their lives? You know, what, what do you do with all that, right? And so anyway, that's, that's kind of a cool thing. Well, I look back on my own life as a pastor. I was mentored as well. I was mentored by, uh, by my circuit, uh, circuit counselor when I first started out in Missouri, I was mentored by my, uh, by my uncles. I had uncles that were pastors. I would have loved to have been mentored by my father, but he was already in heaven. So it's really a wonderful thing when you have the chance to be mentored, and then eventually you have a chance to return the favor and mentor, uh, mentor somebody else. So that's what he's talking about here. He's saying that Timothy now has reached the place where he isn't just some little kid wet behind the ears. He can actually do the work of the pastor. That's what he's talking about when he says, you know of his proven worth, okay? His proven worth. It's not about his love for the Lord when he says that. It's not about uh, that he can do the job. It's not that he doesn't, it's not about his expertise in doing the job. Proven worth means that he can stand the test, and so that's where beloved life principle number 14 comes in. Love and trust are two different things. Love is unconditional. Trust is earned by keeping your word, your word. And that's what that proven worth is about. 
is that the, the, the worth and value, not as a person, right? We're not talking about personhood here. And we're not talking about how uh, God feels about us uh, per- personally in terms of how much he loves us. We're not talking about that. We're talking about this idea that, that uh, Timothy had to reach that place where Paul felt like he could truly count on him. That through thick and thin, he would still be there. That's what that proven worth is, uh, is about. So he says, you know, Timothy is here with me. I can't come to you. So I'm going to send this other worker to you, Epaphroditus. All right. And he was also a worker, a, a fellow soldier, somebody who had been with Paul in the ranks. It's interesting. This is about, that's about all we know about him. There's not a whole lot we know. This is, again, one of those sort of famous people that nobody knows, right, uh, in terms of uh, Paul's, uh, Paul's ministry. But we are reminded of the significance of having people in our life that we trust, people that we can turn to who who are walking with us through whatever the thing is we're going through. And you might remember, oh, a number of weeks back, we talked about these uh, Kairos moments that we have in life. Remember well, remember the Kairos that take place in your Kronos? Kronos is the days and weeks and months and, you know, the sequence of, of your every day, right? But Kairos are those uh, singular moments in life where it seems that something significant happens. And when it happens, we're trying to figure out what to make of it, right? It, maybe there's a, it's a time of confusion. Maybe it's a time of loss. Maybe it's a time when there's a little bit of a faith crisis that also is involved with it. We're kind of looking at ourselves and we're saying, I don't think I feel God's presence or, you know, I, it doesn't feel to me like he really cares about me. You know, it's, it's those kind of moments. Well, one of the things that's really important to, to have already cultivated in your life are these trusted people that can walk with you through those Kairos moments. So that those are people who maybe have been there already in their lives, or maybe it's a mentor, or maybe it's somebody that is, is a person that can come alongside you and help you kind of make sense of something that maybe doesn't make any sense. Am I making sense? Right? Okay. Yeah. But it's sort of that idea. It, and that's what Epaphroditus was for for Paul. And so when you think about the worthy traits of what that person might be or, or what that person might consist of, there's some of the things that Paul says here in the reading that would fit that for us. So he describes the Epaphroditus as a minister to my need. So that tells us right away that this was a guy who had compassion and the compassionate energy, he, what did he do? He harnessed that into serving Paul. So if you're looking for somebody who's going to come alongside you, you definitely want somebody who's got some energy for you, who's got some compassion for you, who's not indifferent to, uh, to your situation. It also says that he was longing for you all. So there's a, you know, that word longing has to do with a deep yearning, that it isn't just his job, Right. It isn't just something, oh, I'm doing this to make money. Oh, I'm doing this because I'm waiting for something better to come along. That isn't what that is. What he's talking about here is that this is a deep yearning that truly loves people. He was sick to the point of death. I think that's a huge aspect of having someone come alongside you in terms of Kairos. Because what that means to me is, is that this is somebody who's been through it himself. And that, I think, again, is the value behind mentoring, is that you've been through it. Maybe you've been through it a hundred times, right? And the value that that is for the other person is that you can see an outcome to something that in the moment when it happens, it feels like the end of the world. Have you ever had somebody say that to you? This is just the end of the world. This is it, right? Every time I talk to... uh, teenagers who got dumped by a girlfriend or a boyfriend. That's exactly what, and you can feel for them, you know, like if you ever got dumped, well, then you know exactly what that feels like. But it's like, it's like, oh, this is the end of the world. What else is there to do? There's nothing. But the reality is, is that when you've been through that a number of times yourself and came out on the other side of that, 
maybe growing up a little bit or maybe uh, having a part of yourself be, uh, be somehow improved in some way or just different. You're able to share that. You're able to help the person see that there truly is hope uh, through, that, uh, through that tunnel. And then uh, he, says, he, he says, when you see him again and rejoice, that I may have less concern about you. One of the probably the, the best thing about having a mentor, the best thing about having somebody come alongside you is that this is somebody who will tell you the truth. They will tell you the truth whether you want to hear it or not. How many of you are blessed with a person like that right now in your life? They will tell you the truth. Every single one of you that's married better have your hand raised up right now, because if you don't, there's something wrong going on here. Yeah. Yeah. Now this is, does not uh, guarantee that you will listen to the truth, right? It doesn't even guarantee whether or not you will actually do the truth, but you know, there's a lot of value to, uh, to somebody telling you the truth. Does it matter to you how that truth is delivered to you? Does that matter? That matters? Okay. Some people say, well, that's the way I am. I'm just going to tell it like it is. And I find that I don't want to be around that person then. That's, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go to chapter three then in uh, Philippians and uh, we'll see how far we can get. Okay. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things again is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Does it sound like he's bragging just a little bit? It, it sounds that way. But when we look at the context of it, we'll sort of get what it is that he's really, uh, the point he's really trying to make. All right. Now, one of the things we want to remember, and we talked about this a little bit when we first started our study uh, of Philippians, is that there were many people and many uh, uh, groups of people who were claiming to be uh, of the true Christian faith. And one of the groups that was very strong and very present in Philippi was a group of uh, Jewish Christians who were saying that the only way that you could truly be certain, the only way you could truly be confident of your faith in Christ and be a true Christian was if you started out being a true Jew first. Because again, the thinking was, well, what was Jesus before he became a Christian? He was Jewish. Everybody was Jewish. So it makes sense. Everybody has to become Jewish in order to become Christian, right? And so their insistence then was, was that you, the, at least as a male, you had to be circumcised. That was the first thing because circumcision was the, the sign of the covenant from the Old Testament. We remember that the story of that. Um, and so that made perfect sense. And then you would have to also follow and observe all of the Jewish laws, those dietary laws and those, those worship laws and those Sabbath laws and all those kinds of things, that that was to be part of and inclusive of your Christianity. And if you didn't do that, then you were, there was some question about the, whether you were a true Christian or not, or at least whether the level of your Christianity was rising to the level of where God wanted it to be. I don't know. Is there some logic to that thinking? I mean, we would say, oh, bad, 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 but it, it stuck with people. It kind of made sense to people. So is there some logic there that sort of would kind of fit? where you would be inclined to say, well, yeah, that, that must be how it is. And so see, Paul was directly attacking that. And that's what he's going after here. So what he says is, is beware of the dogs. Now that word dog, for those of us that like dogs, we feel a little offended by the use of this word. All right. But that was a word that was actually used. It was a, it was a slam. It was like a uh, slur 
that was used in Jesus's day and in Paul's day uh, where the Jews would talk about Gentiles that way. They would say the dogs. And the example that we have of that, kind of interestingly enough, was there was this little incident where this lady came up to Jesus and wanted a blessing from her. Do you remember this uh, story? And Jesus said, what was his response? It's not right to give the children's bread to the to the dogs. Whoa. Now she came right back at him. It was awesome moment. What did she say? Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus went, yes. He high-fived everybody there that moment because he saw in that moment this woman's uh, strength and her determination and well as well as having a quick brain. I, I'm so envious of people that can just come back with something so fast. Uh, that is such a hard thing for me to do. So that's what he means when he says, beware of the dogs. There's a caution there, right? There's a caution. Jesus does not want us to be naive and think to ourselves, oh, all the religions are the same. All the versions of Christianity are the same. All the things that people say are true about what the Bible says are not necessarily true. He wants us to be wise about that. So he says, you know, in terms of that, of that wisdom. So if you look at the verses that I have some there written for you, Matthew, 6, uh, Matthew 10, verse 16, he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Now, how would you pull that off? What would that look like? Be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Well, first of all, doves are also stupid. So, you know, I don't know if that's what he meant exactly. Have you ever seen a nest that a dove makes? That is the crummiest nest that there ever was. I don't know how any egg could stay in that nest very long. That, if you want a nest, you watch a robin or a mockingbird or a cardinal. Now, that's a nest. I don't know why, Jesus. I don't know what he meant there. Okay, so shrewd as serpents. What does that mean? What does that mean? Bring your egg game. That would be our way of saying it today. See, the world around us wants to convince us that... Its way of seeing life and its way of measuring worth and value in life is a certain way. That's diametrically opposed to where Jesus is coming from. So how we measure and how we quantify worth and value and lovability for us as human beings is like two different things. So he says, you know, be, be smart. Don't go into uh, life thinking that, oh, all religions are the same. Everything's the same. We're all going to the same place and yet be as innocent as doves. There is a certain amount of, in, in that innocence, a lack of cynicism, you know, it's, it's kind of like saying that maybe the world isn't changing the way that we would like for it to, or maybe it's not changing as fast as we want it to. But in that innocence, I'm going to continue to do what God wants me to do, which is to spread the gospel. And I'm going to trust that the gospel is going to do its work in its time. But what I'm not going to do is hold God hostage to that as if I'm going to say, the only way that I'm going to trust in you is if I see X, Y, Z happening. And then therefore, now I know that it really works. That's that innocence kind of thing, right? So it's a little bit of a tension between the two. All right. Would somebody read Matthew 7, 15 and 16, please out loud? Anyone? Yeah, Sandy. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. You know them by their fruits. Okay, so again, there's that word beware. See, the caution of false prophets. That there are people out there, maybe their intent is entirely good. They think that they're preaching the gospel of Christ. Maybe they're even using the exact words of the gospel of Christ, Right? But what they do with those words is they scoop out the biblical meaning and then they put their own meaning in there. And then you hear the same words and you think, oh, it's the same words. It must be the same church, it must be the same gospel. And it's not. 
So there is some discerning that has to go on, right? And I think to a large degree, that's one of the values, one of the the things that's significant and important about daily study of the word. And then we gather together weekly to kind of hash that word out just a little bit. Because we need to be able to talk that through so that we can have that ability to see falseness where it truly is. And so the importance of it is uh, underscored in, in Ephesians 4, where he says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and by craftiness in deceitful scheming. So beloved life principle number 15 is spiritual discernment is a critical learned discipline in today's world. Fake spirituality can kill eternally. It's that important. It's that significant. Okay. Okay. I thought it was clever on my part to, uh, to do that. All right. So help me with what you are asking and then I'll buzz over to Carl. Well, I mean, you say faith, spirituality, but then it seems so opposite. We say you can kill eternity. Yes. I mean, it seems like we all want to be more faithful than spiritual. I guess I'm taking it out of context. Well, you said faith, spirit. Faith. Oh, faith. Oh, Oh, what did you think I said? Oh, faith. Faith. Okay, Phil. Let's make a note that I probably need to spell stuff on here. (laughs) Yeah, I probably do. Okay. F-A-K-E. Fake. Yeah, that's, that would be important. (laughs) Does everybody on this side of the room feel better now? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now does it make sense? Now it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, because (laughs) what would an example of fake spirituality be? Well, uh, in Paul's day, it would have been this idea that you, you are truly spiritual in the right sense of that word if you're doing all the required things that are required of a Christian, including all the Jewish stuff, circumcision, all those kinds of things. So it's adding a whole bunch of, of, of rituals or a whole bunch of, uh, of laws and regulations to your Christianity, all right? Another example would be in the Corinthian church in Paul's day, they were adding to this idea that the only way that you could truly be confident of your Christianity is if you speak in tongues. And so the whole idea of speaking in tongues became this extra layer of, uh, of your spiritual life. And that meant that if you didn't speak in tongues, because you were like German, you didn't speak in tongues, well, then, then probably you, the level of or the depth of your spirituality was something to be questioned. So that's an example of fake, what I'm talking about with fake, F-A-K-E, spirituality. If, does that make a little bit more sense? Yeah. Okay, so if it leads me away from Christ, what is my outcome? Eternal death. If it leads me away from Christ. Okay, now, to what degree I'm led away and how far away I am, I don't know. That's God's call. You know, where, where does it go from I've, I'm muddled up in my faith, F-A-I-T-H, okay? I'm muddled up in my faith to that line where I have rejected my faith. I don't know where that line is. But if I cross that line, now I'm putting myself in spiritual jeopardy. Okay, that's what it means. Okay, yeah. Well, couldn't fake spirituality be like putting your salvation in something fake? Yeah. Like circumcision, putting all of your salvation into something like that or good works. Right. And that's what Paul's looking at here. See, if we go a little bit further down, and Carl, I haven't forgotten you, okay? If you look a little further down, he talks about this idea of the phrase confidence in the flesh. Confidence in the flesh. See, what that was talking about in his day was people who, who said, the only way that you can truly be confident of your standing with God is if you do all these things. 
So whatever the level of perfection was that was required of you, that's what you were constantly attaining for. You were constantly seeking for that. So it would mean that it wouldn't be enough to memorize the book of Isaiah. You had to memorize all of the prophets of the Old Testament. If you thought that that would get you closer to God, if you thought that that would Uh, achieve for you a certain level of standing with God, well, then that's what your life was all about. And the problem is, of course, who's perfect? See, who doesn't experience failure? What if the moment when I'm supposed to do the recital of when I'm supposed to be able to say, okay, here I memorized it, my mind goes blank. What do I do then? Right? See, and so the confidence was, the level of confidence was based on what you did or the credentials that you acquired, or the level of the, uh, the degrees. If you think of it like the, the lodge, the Masonic lodge, the different degrees. Okay, if you think of it like that, that would be the way to, to, uh, to sort of appreciate this. And what Paul is saying is, hey, if you want to talk to me about the levels of achievement in the Jewish faith, it, confidence in the flesh, I've got all of you beat. I've got, because I am at the height of everything that you could possibly want as a, as a Jewish person. I was circumcised on the eighth day, not on the seventh. And it was to the nation of Israel. So I am an Israelite and not only am I Israelite, but I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And that was the favored, the favored one. So he says, I am the favorite one of everybody. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews as to the law. What did I do? I studied to become a what? The Pharisee, those guys knew the law inside and out. They could teach law classes and often did. As to zeal, he demonstrated his zeal by doing what? Persecuting the Christian church. And as to the righteousness, which was the obedience of all those laws and regulation, he reached the level of being called by others blameless. Blameless didn't mean forgiven. What blameless meant was, was that I follow these things to the letter. And what he's saying is, hey, if you want to get into a tug of war with me on who's got the most confidence in the flesh, I can beat you every time. That's what he's saying. Does that make sense? But look what he says in verse seven. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as what? loss for the sake of Christ. Carl, you wanted to say something. Yeah, going back to Matthew 7, uh, yeah. he gives us two key pieces uh, of the trust uh, of the prophet. Not only the words, but wait for their actions. Yeah. Uh, we see that today in so much of our communities and our, our things that are going on. Mm-hmm. People say wonderful things, but their actions are opposite. Yeah. The harder one to discern is when the actions actually are good. That's the harder one because the teaching is a little bit slanted, right? But the community or the civic good that's done in the name of that teaching actually is quite worthy of praise. It actually gets a lot of press. So you think, for example, some of the, some of the churches like the Mormon church as an example, the Mormons are highly regarded as at least in their circles as being people that will give their shirt off your back. They, they have these, these, uh, these, these aid sort of groups that will assist people in times of difficulty, times of trouble. And so what happens is people in the, in the world or in our society, look at the good that they do and they conclude, well, that's got to be a Christian group. It's got to be somebody who's teaching the same gospel as we are, because look at all the good they're doing. See, that's where it's a lot more difficult and a lot more challenging. And yet so important for us to be discerning. Discerning means that we're able to make a wise judgment about the teaching that that church or that that uh, community might profess. And so, you know, that is going to take some work, doesn't it? I mean, what would it take to, to sort of be able to get to that point where you could discern that? What would you have to learn about? Oh, no. Yeah, you'd actually have to study 
what that other group really believes. Where would you find that out? You'd Google it, of course, yes, yes. <laughs> Wikipedia, of course, that's what you would do. Yeah, you could, but again, it would require some time and some effort to look at what is, what is it that's in the official writings and teachings of that, of that church or of that, uh, of that group or that sect. And sadly, I don't know that people today have the attention span or the interest to do that. That's one of the sad aspects of, of, of our society today that we sort of expect to know it right away. And if it's not quick, easy, and fun, I'm out, I'm out of here. I'm done with it. But what the problem with that is that it renders people very susceptible then to being led astray. And my whole point with the FAKE was that there is danger in flirting with that. There's danger. There's spiritual danger involved. Somebody else had their hand up. Yeah, Richard. So that would be one of those dog arguments about there are many ways to God. Uh, okay, say that again, because I kind of got lost when you said dog, okay? The, the, beware of the dogs. Yeah. We were talking about the dogs have, you have to do this, this, yeah, this. Yeah. So one of those arguments that's prevalent, which prevents people from studying what this group or that group, all, all roads are leading to God. Yes. Okay. So that, that becomes the convenient and quite um, easy way to get out of doing that, is to simply say, well... God by many names, okay, Allah, God, you know, Yahweh, however you want to say it, it's all the same God anyway, and then all these religions all lead to the same place. See, that's very common today. Frankly, it's the lazy way out. It's just an easy way out. I don't, I don't have to study anybody else. I don't need to be informed. I don't need to be educated. I don't even have to be biblically literate because all I have to do is just say, well, we're all going the same place anyway, so what's the difference? Yeah. Higher power is a real popular thing. It is. Higher power. It is. Now, I, I have a little bit of a less than antagonistic view toward that because higher power comes out of the 12-step movement. So if you've ever had any involvement with or knew somebody that was in a 12-step group, that's what they talk about in there. They use the word higher power. Sometimes that's offensive because, you know, we know God by the Trinity, that kind of thing. But when you're trying to uh, introduce people, maybe for the first time, to the idea that they are powerless and they can't control something by themselves, then the idea of higher power. Fortunately, there are Christian 12-step groups out there as well that don't use the word higher power, but they use... um, they use words like God and Jesus and that kind of thing. But if you just looked at it that way, only higher power, there's no relationship there, right? It's just kind of this sort of nebulous kind of, you know, thing that's floating in the air that nobody can explain. All right. Other thoughts? All right. So, yeah. I hear people a lot of times they'll be like the universe. The universe. The, I hear that word mm-hmm. lately. It's, yeah. Well, I'm letting the universe decide that for me. Yes. <laughs> Well, I know there's a lot of new agey people out there, you know, and I kind of run into them a little bit because I go monthly for acupuncture. And that's one of the things I do for uh, to reduce my stress and allergy treatments. So I go to acupuncture. Well, if you kind of hang out in the acupuncture world a little bit, you're going to kind of rub elbows with a few new agey people. And you have to kind of learn to sort of handle that. But there's that often is is used. It's kind of this sort of mystical, magical thing that is greater than us. But we dare not give it a name because then, by golly, we might actually be talking about a religion. So we just use that sort of uh, PC kind of sort of language for that. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, Max. In Sedona, they call it a spiritual force. Yes. I think there's a vortex there. Well, there is. There, the Bermuda Triangle is over to the east, and then we have the vortex in the west. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and. And, and Plano is right smack in the middle. So, <laughs> so we take this like this and bring it down. And now we know where Jesus will come again is maybe right out there on the parking lot between us and the Hope Center. Am I recording? Oops. Okay. Okay. All right. So let's go back to verse seven. All right. So notice what Paul says. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted, let's say that again, as what? Loss for the sake 
of Christ. What were those things that were a gain to him at one time in his life? All those things that we just, he just said. See, all those things that he had aspired to be in his life, not only because he thought it would please his parents, not only because he thought it would gain him acceptance in that community that he was running in, because he was seen as a, he was way up there, right? Not only would that achieve for him a measure of feeling like, oh, finally I know what my life is about, which all those things would have done, right? And see, that's such a powerful driver in people's lives is when you're trying to figure out why are you here and why did God put you here in the world at this time in this place? And not a hundred years ago, you know, why, why now? And why what? Well, when in Paul's case, he thought he figured it out with all those things that he had achieved. And yet we get always the sense in Paul's life and in his writings that he had achieved the pinnacle. He couldn't go any higher. And yet it wasn't enough that there was something missing. There was something lacking and it kept pushing and pushing and pushing him. And frankly, I think that it would have perhaps even physically killed him. Right. And then what does Jesus do? He directly intervenes. He directly interferes on the road to Damascus. And then Paul has this amazing conversion experience. The point is, is that Paul thought this is how you get there. And it wasn't until this encounter with Jesus Christ and then the subsequent difficulties that came after that, like being blind for three days and being sort of powerless and having somebody have to lead you around and like show you where the bathroom is and I mean all that kind of stuff, right? To have that sort of level of all of this, he lost it all. Now he still had it, but now notice what his perspective is. His perspective is, is that, oh, all these things are really nice. And in fact, these things are are good for me because it does give me credibility with a certain audience, right? He can go talk to Jewish people and they would say, you're the guy. We will listen to you. So he would have credibility with that group. But that credibility was not giving him his purpose in life. It was not how his value and worth in life was being established. That was going to come from somewhere else. And that's what Paul is saying, is whatever things were a gain to me, those things I've shifted in my thinking. They're nice, but they are not critical for my life. So the question for us is what counts? That's the question. You think about your life. What counts? And what is it that you have put a lot of energy and effort into attaining, right? Not that that's bad. That's a good thing. You've worked hard. But the danger is, is that that which we achieve becomes our reason for living. It becomes our existence. It becomes the way that we measure our value and worth, uh, particularly to God. And the question would be, what if you lost all that? What if somebody came along and said, fake, What if somebody came along and accused you of something you didn't do and you're having to resign from the positions that you're in, which many people are today. I don't know if they're innocent or guilty, but nowadays if you get accused, you're guilty. What if you lose it all? Does that mean now you are of no worth? You are of no value. There's nothing redeemable about your life. And whatever purpose God had for you in this life has now been totally blown up And even God has given up on you. That's what we would conclude if we take all of that and make that the main and only thing in life. That's why this verse is so critical. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. Wow. Yeah, Carl. Good. Did I hit it? Okay. Okay. Anybody else have a thought about that? Yeah, Glenn. I was just sitting here thinking that man was made by God for God, but he gave us the discernment to make the final choice as to whether he really is God of our lives or if we're choosing something else to be God. Yeah, and I think what he's saying is is that, that 
I hope I don't butcher what you said because I thought it was really good, is that God made us for him. All through our lives, we're constantly maybe um, barraged with opportunities to get that messed up, right? And so then what happens is, is that we find that things that are spectacular, things that sparkle, things that pay well, things that bring about a certain measure of uh, uh, acclamation from other people, that it's very tempting to sort of place all of your, all of the weight on those things, right? At the expense of our relationship with God. Very good. Okay, let's go to the next page. So let's see what he says about this. Verse 8. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, F-A-I-T-H, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So see, now what Paul does is he says, this is now how I look at all of life. It isn't just limited to those academic uh, achievements that I got or the, the uh, successes that I've achieved or the uh, medals that I uh, can wear on my chest or the certificates that I can put on my wall. He says it's not even just those things. Now in his whole life, he is taking all the things that maybe at one time could have easily been used to sort of bolster his ego, Right. He's saying, no, now everything in my life is something that I count as loss and count them as what? What does he use the word? The word he uses there. Rubbish, rubbish. That's kind of an old word. I don't do people even use that word rubbish anymore. We all maybe know what that is, right? Trash. Yeah, exactly. But notice what he does is he says, again, he's not saying that these things have no value in life. He's not saying that, right? But what he's saying is, is that at the end of the day, at the end of your life, at the, when you've lost everything and you can't even do anything for yourself, and maybe you don't even remember your own name, much less all the things that you did in your life. Who cares? Who cares? Because what is known is that Jesus knows you. And when Jesus knows you and you know Jesus, all that other stuff was nice, but all that other stuff doesn't, doesn't count for anything. It's rubbish. it's rubbish. Yeah. Now, it's not that it was worthless during your life, right? Yeah. But you can't take it with you. What you take with you is the relationship that you have in faith through Jesus Christ, who did it all for you on the cross and then rose again on the third day with God saying to you, everything that Jesus did counted. And because everything Jesus did counted, we don't have to sweat that. So some of us, you know, and I'm one of these people, I really like achieving things. I like learning things. I like to get good grades. I like to get letters after my name. I like all that stuff. Okay. And that gives me some credentials in this world. All right. I like that, but I have to be careful, right? As many of us do that we put more weight onto that than we ought. And we lose perspective. We lose track, if you will, of the thing that really is important. So beloved life principle number 16, a wonderful way to uh, sort of close today, at least uh, unless there's uh, something you want to add. A maturing faith discerns what is truly worth W-O-R-T-H, not W-E-R-T-H, okay? W-O-R-T-H, what is worth valuing in life. But it's often not until the end of life that we realize it. Isn't that true? As you get older, you start to realize, you know, God, all that energy that I wasted, or at least that I, 
that I put into pursuing something that I thought would make it for me. You know, that I thought would be the thing that this will be the boy, that'll be the thing. I'll get over the over the hump there. And then you get over the hump. And what do you discover? There's another hump. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, exactly. Right. And even though all the people that went before you told you ahead of time, that's how it was going to be. Right. What did you say? Oh, that's how it was for you. That isn't going to be how it is for me, right? That's exactly what it is, right? So I'm, again, understand me. I am not putting down the idea that we pursue things, that we achieve things, that we learn things, that we uh, become tested in things, that we, we uh, strive for excellence. I really, I love that idea that we do all that. But don't lose perspective, on what it really is that brings value and worth to life. All right, good stuff today. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the way that your words written so long ago just speaks to us in such a powerful way. There's so many of us today that uh, are kind of caught up in the pursuits of life. And there certainly are a lot of things in life to pursue. And there are many things that are good but Lord, sometimes we lose perspective and we think that once we achieve those, then somehow that that's going to achieve for us a greater sense of worth and value and being loved and being cherished. And most of all, we think that somehow that will increase our standing with you. Thank you, Lord, that you have reminded us in your word that uh, all of that's already been accomplished, that Jesus did all that for us. And that when he died and rose again, that that uh, confirmed for us that uh, the love you have for us through him is something that can never be lost or never be taken away. So help us, dear Lord, to keep that in perspective as we go through our lives pursuing and, and chasing and, and seeking and, and trying to aspire to greater things. Because we know that at the end of life, when we get to that point that we can't take anything with us, we know that you're going to be standing there at the gates of heaven waiting for us and welcoming us into uh, further life with you. Watch over us uh, this week, dear Lord. Be with us. Be with those who were not able to be with us today because of the weather. And uh, bless them and keep them all as, until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.